Hello, everybody. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all here to our monthly pub night, uh, and we're in for a treat this evening. Uh, just on behalf of Wycliffe College, the Meeting House, and joining us this month is the Christian Medical Dental Association. Okay, because you guys changed. All right, um, and tonight we're uh, going to be discussing a very timely topic, uh, medical assistance in dying, and we have an esteemed panel of physicians and principals, and uh, with that being said, uh, I'll introduce uh, Principal Stephen Andrews, who's uh, here at Wycliffe College, and he'll be moderating this evening, and I'll turn it over to him, and uh, he can introduce our lovely panel. Well, thank you very much, Steve. And welcome, everybody, this evening. Um, it is my uh, pleasure to introduce our three uh, esteemed panelists this evening. And uh, I'll start uh, on the north side. And uh, this is uh, Dr. Uh, Larry Reynolds. And Larry is a professor of medicine in Winnipeg. And he's been an academic physician for more than 40 years. He holds a master's degree in bioethics from the University of Toronto here. And he attends St. Margaret's Winnipeg, which is a, a, a congregation in, in Winnipeg that uh, has sent a number of students to us here at Wycliffe College. And uh, one of the reasons, I think, is because uh, uh, Dr. Reynolds is on our Wycliffe College board. And uh, it's really partly his initiative uh, that this evening has come about. Uh, because this is a, a, a theme uh, that uh, he gives a lot of uh, thought and attention to and uh, offered himself uh, to be part of a discussion. So thank you very much for being with us, Larry. And uh, next to him is uh, Natasha Fernandes from uh, the University of, Tr of Ottawa uh, Medical School. And uh, she says that she knew early on that she wanted to pursue psychiatry as a specialty, and so she's uh, completing her fourth year in a residency in psychiatry here at, at the university. And uh, she says that her uh, plans are eventually to specialize in psychosis and addictions. So thank you, Natasha, for being with us. We look forward to hearing from you and uh, your perspective here. And uh, next to me is uh, Dr. Julia Lee. And uh, Julia is a trained uh, family uh, physician who specializes in obstetrics and palliative care, hatching and dispatching. Uh, she is uh, adjunct faculty at the University of Toronto and at McMaster University, where she's been teaching for 15 years. She also mentors Christian medical students in navigating their faith uh, in, in the pursuit of their careers. Uh, she, along with her husband, Ben, right here, are both currently MDiv students here at Wycliffe College. So you've been thinking about these things in the context of um, the possibility of pastoral ministry. So uh, we've got three uh, wonderful uh, folks here coming from different backgrounds. So I thought as a way, uh, perhaps, of getting to know you a little bit uh, and also getting uh, insight into kind of what makes you tick, uh, I would begin by simply asking you, what made you want to pursue a career in medicine? I'll just throw that open to see who 
wants to answer that. Oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that question. Okay. Um, I, I always knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but I think it was, I was thinking of a family doctor kind of um, ideal. And then when I, and so based on that, I just enjoyed that concept of having a longitudinal relationship with patients from cradle to their grave and um, caring for them. I think the caring aspect really appealed to me. And then understanding the human body always fascinated me and that was part of it as well. So those things together led me to medicine. But then after my first year of medical school, I realized I didn't want to be a family doctor. Um, and then psychiatry became my clear kind of vocation. Um, I think it's a bit complicated, right? It's hard to know uh, being, uh, especially since I see some of my medical students here, um, being Asian and an immigrant, uh, how much that plays into the achievement ideal, um, but I think there is still a lot of nobility in, in practicing medicine. It's in many ways like pastoral ministry, we're just a little bit more technical in terms of how much access to the vulnerability and brokenness and hurt uh, that afflicts all of us uh, and how we are so privileged to be able to at certain touch points really impact people um, and their families and their loved ones uh, in helping, if not to heal, then at least to, um, to deal, with, well, deal with the issues that, uh, the medical issues that they have. Thank you, Julie. We, I think they're working on the uh, technical side of it. We'll just sort of carry on and, yeah, and he'll fine tune as we go along. Larry, what about you? I mean, it's so, it's so hard, you know, you look back on this and you think, how did this actually happen and how did I get here? So I think probably it's the sciences and the, and the humanities combined. And also, I think, a sense of personal calling as a Christian to do something to, to reach out to people and to help people who are sick or who are dying. And probably confirmed by, you look back at those effective teachers that you had in in elementary and high school who were affirming and said, you know, you should be a doctor. It's a natural fit for your kind of stuff. And it's one of the few things I listened to in my elementary and high school education, so. Mm -hmm. So is it essential that um, people who go into medicine have uh, a, a sort of gift of compassion? Is that required, would you say? <laughs> Well, it should be, it's, it really depends that people have a different view of medicine now than when I started a thousand years ago. But people now sometimes see themselves as a tech, technician, they have a mechanistic view of the body and we're not really different than mechanics, we're here to fix a certain part of, of the body. They fail to realize that all care is palliative, because all patients are gonna die, us included. And they have, have lost what I think is a foundational, can be a foundational part of medicine, and that's that this is not a contract relationship between doctors and patients, but is a covenant relationship. It's a relationship of, of undeserved approval, of grace, of unconditional sort of understanding or acceptance of patients not for this 
I get paid this, and that's one of the things I think they're eroding medicine as a profession. They're moving more towards working to contract or working to rule. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Either of you? I mean, I think I'd have to agree with, um, especially as curriculum has changed over the years, I think in terms of the formational ways that students are being formed, I would agree, they're, they're being formed into being technicians, skilled, highly skilled technicians. Um, I mean, I would say there are some disciplines where compassion isn't as necessary, <laughs> um, that don't necessarily have to do with direct patient contact. So there is still room for, uh, for people who aren't quite attuned that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. There's a high burnout rate among physicians. Um, and I think, I won't say that if compassion would remove that completely, but I certainly think it might alleviate that because you just might take a different perspective on your job. Mm -hmm. and it might help carry the load a little lighter. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That might be something we'd want to come back to, um, particularly for physicians who attend to the dying um, and, uh, and how they care for themselves uh, in the um, uh, moment of, uh, of that experience and, um, and how they prevent uh, burnout. Um, but it does make me wonder whether or not um, any of you yourselves have had any Close, uh, close personal experiences of death, maybe per, with a member of, of the family, and, and in particular, how, uh, if so, how has that shaped uh, your uh, understanding of, of the experience of death and the experience of dying? I think, um, coming from a Korean background, I mean, there's a lot of the idea around the victory in Jesus stuff after we die. So, I, and I think as people who are believers, who believe that this is not all that there is, uh, that there is something more beyond, um, I should hope of all people on the planet that we would be the people with the most hope despite and in spite of being in the, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Um, not that that doesn't take the edge of grief um, off, not that it doesn't, it stops one from mourning or feeling deep grief, but the assurance, the assurance that that is not the end, that this is not the last time um, that we would see each other, I would hope as believers sustains us despite our grief. Either of you have a personal experience that's shaped your approach? I mean, it's, it's all personal experiences shape your approach. I think my involvement in my early, early career in palliative care was remembering that how you handle this event with this family is something that can have a lifelong impact on them and trying to navigate, negotiate decisions to what we would call a path of least regret, to say when the family look back on, on how their mother or their sister or their husband was treated and the decisions that they made, 
are they still going to have trust in healthcare providers? Are they going to have trust in the system? Are they going to have residual guilt, which you know can be an intergenerational thing? So those kinds of conversations and the fact that doctors get most of their exercise jumping to conclusions. It's a really unfortunate kind of thing that a part of our formation is to push us into being experts on everything and, and, and the pressure to move people through the system, not taking enough time to allow families to make end-of-life decisions that are going to leave them in a healthier state for the rest of their lives is something that you have to sort of struggle with and you have to resist that pressure to, to push families towards decisions that they may, they may regret and that were probably uh, unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Natasha, anything that you want to contribute? Yeah. Um, I think, so my uncle had passed away a few years ago now um, and he was in India so um, I had actually had the opportunity to visit him at the time when he was, he was first diagnosed, he had pancreatic cancer um, and he, um, his whole life was very faithful, strong Catholic um, and had his beliefs to support him, but what was striking was that he still was scared, right? And I think that that is kind of what has stuck with me is that, you know, you have your beliefs, but at the end of life, there's still that worry or whatnot, and there is that fear. And I think that we're so, um, we want to fix things, particularly in medicine. We just want to take what's broken and put it back together. Um, and I don't know if it's just because I'm in psychiatry, but I'm learning that you can't fix everything. And that's okay. Um, so if someone is afraid, we can just sit with them and experience that fear with them. And sometimes that can be helpful um, in, their, in their journey. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I, I, I sort of asked that question partly because uh, I know that in my own pastoral care that uh, I think the experience of my own parents dying has, um, has, has changed in some ways the way that I relate to families when they're going through that experience themselves. And that some of it has to do with this question of needing to fix them, fix things and to say things are all right, things are going to be all right in the end and such. My own experience uh, sort of having gone through that with my own parents was that I, I, I think I've come to realize that the most important thing clergy can do sometimes is just simply be there and not answer, try to answer the big questions. Yeah. Um, tell me, uh, on the 17th of June in 2016, uh, Bill C-14 to legalize and regulate assisted dying passed in Canada's parliament. Uh, were you involved in any kind of formal or informal discussions regarding uh, the development of this uh, legislation uh, or how aware were you of it uh, when it was making its way uh, through the legislature? It's hard to, it's hard to know because it was such a busy time for people who were trying to put the brakes uh, on this and trying to moderate the the kind of legislation as to what, you know, inevitable death means, which is we're all inevitably dying. So there was a lot of concern. It's hard to know, looking back on that kind of busy time, you know, what representations we were making to members of parliament and others actually 
got through to them or not. So we're certainly viewing it with a lot of concern, what it would mean for the practice of medicine, what it would mean for the role of suicide and problem solving in the rest of the population and, um, and where it would take, you know, how quickly it would become a, you know, an option versus a requirement, which has happened in other countries, so, which has mostly proved to be true. So um, I think in palliative practice, I think it was kind of really um, moving, knowing that this was coming, was really trying to bolster the ranks of trying to figure out, okay, where are the lines? Like, is this part of palliative care practice or not? Uh, if so, who and where? And um, uh, as well as um, for a lot of people practicing palliative who, well, at least back then, really felt like this was something completely separate, uh, not part of the discipline of palliative care at all. Um, you know, a lot of kind of like, that's not us, this is us, and we need to make quite clear that palliative care is this and it's not physician-assisted suicide. Um, yeah, and then kind of after, after it came into effect, it was a lot of scrambling about like, okay, well, how does this operationalize now? Um, so there was, yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy when it first came out in terms of how does this work, right? Yeah. I don't know if this will directly answer your question, but in terms of involvement, I was present at the Carter tri case trial um, for like over the course of the days, and I just remember at the end of it going back to my class, and I just cried because I knew that we lost, even without the verdict, just based on how everything was being presented, and I was just so struck by this like false naivety almost that there was no slippery slope that there was like we could control things we are different than the dutch and the netherlands for some reason like just this like arrogance um and they did a good job with their arguments and the way that they sold it and it just seemed so clear so that was a hard time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well i I, th I think i heard uh, at one point that uh, the Association of Palliative Care Doctors was very much against uh, this legislation. Um, what is, how have uh, people sort of aligned themselves since that time? Do you find that, uh, that there's a growing sort of sense of support of this or...? or I, I mean, the, the National Association did back then come up with a statement that, that this was not palliative. Um, that it was a separate discipline entirely, don't, don't um, equivocate the two. Um, but they did leave it open for individual hospices as well as individual groups of physicians to make their own decision making. I mean, subsequently, uh, I mean, there's two hospices here in the city of Toronto uh, and and uh, quite quickly, one of them decided that they uh, would allow made to happen on their premises, um, and the other one did not. Um, still, as far as I understand, still does not allow uh, made uh, on their premises, even though uh, there are several people affiliated with them who really want it to happen. Uh, I think similarly amongst groups of physicians, um, 
initially definitely made providers were definitely a separate discrete group from palliative care physicians. I think that Venn diagram has increasingly gotten a little bit overlappy uh, in terms of who provides. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit murkier than it was three years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still a very small number of physicians who are providers, but it's become a sort of, it's been normalized and not only normalized, but you know, generalized to other people who at the initiation of the legislation, people said, well, they would never qualify for this. Well, now they're qualifying. A woman with, with um, <clears throat> arthritis in Toronto being euthanized as, you know, by the MAID team because she had persistent you know, arthritic pain. Mm-hmm. And nobody presenting that legislation initially would have ever thought that that would have been a, a consequence, but it is, it's just, part of removing inhibitions against killing or against suicide mm-hmm. creates this, it just lets it loose. And as I said earlier, killing is infectious, you know, and suicide is infectious and people don't reason, mm-hmm. realize that. that. Also the failure for us to understand how much of this is a symptom of something else in our society rather than, than a problem itself, it's a symptom of the triumph of autonomy, we all want to be our own tyrants and that means we can tell physicians what to do, we can tell parliament what to do, we can tell the Supreme Court what to do, we can tell Catholic hospitals what to do because we want to be tyrants of our own lives. And partly, Stanley Harwas talks about this in his, some of his writings going back to an encyclical from Paul XIII saying that people more and more expect a life of comfort and insulation, insulation from suffering. And that creates this lack of resilience, lack of robust ability to tolerate difficulties. And the contrast between a medieval approach to sudden death, the great litany says, you know, from sudden death protect us because why would you want to go to face your maker if you weren't sort of, you know, confessed and forgiven and and absolved, whereas now people want to die painlessly in their sleep, if at all possible, so interesting. Just to your point about how infectious it is, the Canadian Council of Academies in 2018 um, were asked to do a report about investigating extending euthanasia to um, people with dementia, so an advanced directive, to children and to the individuals with mental illness. Um, So they're already within two years of the law trying to extend it to other areas. But it's interesting in terms of talking about the tyrant and and comfort issue in in terms of even how maids rolled out here in Canada compared to, you know, most closely probably Oregon and Washington in the United States is that curiously, um, the majority of people in the United States, in the states where it's legal, um, it's usually actually the patient takes the medication and, and basically does it themselves. And yet here in Canada, how we've rolled it out is that it's actually the physician who has to be present and actively administering medications to the patient. So it's like we want, and I'm not quite sure what about Canadian culture has caused this to be, but there's something about us wanting our autonomy and yet not wanting the responsibility. 
Um, and so uh, of the several thousands and thousands of, of made deaths that have happened, there's actually only been six where patients have done it themselves. Every single other one, a physician or a nurse practitioner has actually directly administered the medications to the patient to ensure that they are dead, right? Like it, it's a curious, I think it's a curious Canadianism and I'm not sure why. Well, it's also partly the over-medicalization of life in general. You know, childbirth is a disaster until proven otherwise. Like women are defective incubators and they could, their baby could die at any moment unless a man with a machine is going to fix them. And it's the same, you can't die unless a doctor is involved somehow. It's like death is over-medicalized. You know? Just to your point, I think there's this element of validation of your choice, I wonder. If someone else is helping you do it, then it almost makes it okay or right. Mm. It, it raises a, a question I've heard, Larry, you uh, raise an objection to the, to the term medical assistance in death. We've been using uh, the, you know, the, the acronym MADE. Well, so it's, a, it's a euphemism. You always wonder, well, what, what's like termination of pregnancy? versus abortion, you know, so termination. Birth is also a termination of pregnancy. Medical assistance in dying is palliative care. So all sorts of people have medical assistance in dying through excellent palliative care. Nobody objects to that. But nobody wants to say euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. So it's the euph you know, what's the euphemism hiding here where it's actually medically-assisted suicide? And why do we as a culture have suicide prevention lines and suicide, suicide prevention strategies and mental health programs trying to reduce suicide. And yet we don't send the MAID team to a northern reserve with a suicide outbreak among young people to say, look, you're doing this wrong here. We have doctors who can do it right for you. So yeah. just, you know, if you're feeling suicidal, come to the nursing station because the MAID team's here. I mean, we don't do that. I, I, just to make a point here, but. but... But that is true. The amount of wordsmithing that went on, because we moved from physician-assisted suicide to physician-assisted death, to eventually this sanitized medical assistance in dying, and it seems like all we're doing is just kind of giving them a nudge, really. Do you, do you, do you think of physician-assisted suicide as a betrayal of, of a physician's uh, Hippocratic Oath? So medical students no longer take the Hippocratic Oath, um, which for very obvious reasons is because in it, it outlines you can't do abortions, you can't kill, do any harm to your patients. So they don't say that anymore. Um, yeah, I just wanted to point that piece out. Well, I think it's the MDification of individuals who turn doctors into gods so, now in my case, that's appropriate, but... Uh, <laughs> so we turn doctors into gods because Parliament can't make a decision on this. Uh, can't make a decision. We have no abortion legislation. We have, you know, our legislation around medical assistance. And, and so we say, oh, well, let's give it, you know, to the high priests of life, and that's doctors. And if you look at any regulatory college's complaints, and see the behavior of doctors, you know, selling drugs to patients for sexual favors, other kind of, these are not superior moral agents. It's, you know, this is a poison chalice that's been handed to doctors, and I think we should have said no. 
if you want this done, then let's get the veterinarians involved here. Let's stay, and they're the ones who have the most experience here. Let's stay within our traditional realm of, of supporting life and accepting that people have always been able to refuse life-sustaining treatment or to have withdrawal of life support treatment where the, the goals of the treatment do not meet the patient's goals. The goals of euthanasia is always to kill the patient. It's not to help the patient, it's to end the patient's life. Perhaps we could move to uh, the, the legislation itself, some of the particulars of the legislation. Um, uh, as I understand it, the legislation has uh, essentially sort of four kind of criteria. Uh, an individual has to be um, eligible for health healthcare uh, in Canada. They have to be at least 18 years of age and capable of making uh, decisions uh, respecting their health. Uh, one that's received, I know, a lot of uh, attention is the third one. That they have to have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. Uh, and then uh, that they have to, uh, I in their informed consent, they have to demonstrate that they're not being pressured into making this decision. How do you, how do you think of these criteria? Uh, again, I, I read one that, that when the, um, that there were a number of doctors who were in support of this legislation before it was actually passed, and then because of the inspecificity of the, of the uh, legislation, they were worried about their legal liabilities and they didn't want to be a participant in it. So at the time where the government had to make this legislation, uh, Jane Philpott was the Minister of Health and Jody Raybould Wilson was the Minister of Justice. Both, as you guys know, are running as independents in this, in this uh, election. And they're both women of faith. And so, and so my colleagues may disagree with me, but I think in light of the Carter decision, it's as restrictive as it could be um, in terms of what they had to provide, uh, in terms of adults who were capable to consent, um, who weren't being pressured into it, who were foreseeably going to die. Like, it's as restrictive as it could have been in light of them having to put something in place. Um, I mean, I will say, though, in my experience, that um, coercion doesn't always come in very obvious ways, like, I really hate you, I wish you would die kind of ways, right? There are very, um, sometimes very kind and gentle ways to coerce someone to ask that um, without careful without careful listening and dissection of what is actually happening in the family, uh, of what the relationships are like. Um, you, it, it, for someone who is already um, amenable to sending someone to die, you can easily ignore those factors uh, that is pushing a patient to ask for it. Um, yeah, coercion isn't always mean. Yeah. Well, the, the Canadian stuff was also to keep us be, from becoming a Switzerland. You know, people would be coming here for euthanasia, so we didn't want to become the Switzerland of North America. The remedial, you know, the suffering is, 
such an open definition that anyone can qualify if they if they term their life as as has a heavy burden of suffering, which is often related to loneliness and abandonment by others, and that you know that the message to anybody who isn't useful in some way is that they don't have a life worth living. So what people, what happens sometimes is that patients pick up the, that kind of rejection. You've lost your value, you're not working, you're cognitively impaired, you're frail, you're a burden. Now I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to be a burden to their children. After what my children have done to me, I'm planning on being a burden. <laughs> A big time, okay, big time. Oh, of course you want to be a burden, it's called payback, you know. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's very, very quickly this has been, and, and it's, it won't be long before the, the 18 years of age, it may already be going, that, well, what about a 17-year-old and what about a 15-year-old who has, you're denying a young person, you know, uh, an easy death because they happen to be 15. So I mean, this is a movement that you know, won't take yes for an answer until they have this available to everybody. And that's what's happening. Because the floodgates have been opened, those inhibitions have been removed, and doctors know best, which is not true. The court in Quebec just recently, I think about a week ago, um, removed the stipulation of requiring a terminal uh, condition. Uh, mainly because two women with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, petitioned the, the government in Quebec to let them die. Um, the federal government is appealing that, but um, currently in Quebec, um, you actually don't no longer need a terminal illness uh, to be able to access Maine. And also in Ontario, there is no age of consent, so I'm confident that it's going to end up being pushed to children as well in the next few years, just given the fact that we don't even have any laws for other areas based on age. Um, but to the point around the criteria, again, I just, I think it's arrogant because it reduces and oversimplifies how, like, we can put in safeguards. For example, the, just saying that someone has to be capable what does that mean? Assessing a person's capacity is incredibly difficult. There's so many nuances there. Um, and particularly in a palliative care population, depression is um, fairly comorbid. And so teasing apart if um, this person is truly making a decision that is based on what they would have done when they were well is very hard to do. For And I'll give a quick example. Um, I once, when I was on call, had a patient come in, a young girl, and she had thoughts of suicide, so I did kind of a suicide depression assessment, and I felt that she was probably safe to go home with follow-up, but then in the meantime, the eMERGE doc had done blood work, and they found that she was very neutropenic, so she was at risk of an infection. And so then internal medicine came to talk to her, and they really struggled because she was saying that she didn't want any follow-up for the neutropenia. She was okay with going home um, and trying to decide if that was a judgment that was made because she was depressed or if that was something that she would have done if she was fine. It was very challenging. Um, so you can imagine even more so what to do if you don't know that this person has this depressed predisposition. It makes it very difficult. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Ontario also has organ donation as an incentive to medical assistance in dying. So that's really, I think, the only province, I don't know about Quebec, but certainly I don't think there is any other province in, in Canada that says you can donate your organs you know, if, if they're acceptable, if you meet criteria, if you have made as well, which is an incentive you know, to bring something good out of something that's inherently tragic or evil and that physicians and other organizations must cooperate with this in, in some way. So, Wait. I know that um, this question of the, about the, the sort of mental state of individuals who choose this uh, course of action um, has actually been part of the way that uh, clergy have sort of rationalized um, uh, the question of uh, Christian burial. Uh, there used to be, it's, I mean, it still exists in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, there's a rubric that says that this service is not to be used by individuals who take their own life while in a sound state of mind. And of course, uh, for generations, uh, those burial offices have been used for people who have committed suicide. But it was on the assumption that anyone who's driven to that kind of uh, uh, extreme action couldn't be in a sound state of mind. So this puts this puts us in a in a funny kind of situation when uh, when it's actually a requirement of this legislation that one be in a sound state of mind. Well, I think those of us who've been involved in palliative care when these requests have come through before legislation was, you know, is the patient asking me? do I consider that they have a life that's not worth living? Is this a test for me and my commitment, my covenant commitment to them, and to explore that and show through our actions and our caring that we do think you have a life worth living? I mean, it's, it's entirely acceptable at some level for an individual to arrive at a point where they may feel that their life is not worth living, and that happens in psychiatry, it happens in end-of-life care. But to give another human being, another fallible human being, the ability to agree with that is crossing into very dangerous territory. When, when other individuals have determined that somebody has a life that's not worth living, very bad things have happened in societies and cultures. But that's what's required of a made physician. They have to agree that this patient's life is not worth living. They're not just a revolver in the hand of the patient. If so they can say yes or no to that, but the basic thing is, yes, I agree, you have a life that isn't worth living. I mean, I think in my experience, everyone who has ever asked, requested, um, it, it's, never really, it's never really been about that. It's never really been about that. It's always, it's always been about, um, it's, you know, which is basically all of our lives. It always comes back down to relationship whether they're trying to avoid or support or, or something, someone, someone. It's, it's always about someone that they love um, and, and what is happening in that, in that dynamic uh, that is driving the ask. That it's, it's always been the case for everyone who's asked. And, um, so you're saying it's not so much a matter of, of, of being uh, fearful about the pain physical pain. It's no, I mean, in, uh, for me, it's always been, there's always been some relational thing going on. 
and um, and kind of whether they and some people just totally avoid it and are trying to run away from it and trying to or or they want to talk about it you know and um, you know because we do we do make some really silly decisions sometimes for love and um, and I think until you know and and it does kind of make me um, concerned about physicians who lack that compassion or that desire to know more or to listen and and to and try and address what is clearly the herd of elephants in the room um, to find some way of finding that love and that meaning and um, again right and mm -hmm. I think you know whenever I've had to navigate that space, it's always been about how do we talk about love, right? And how do we um, talk about what love looks like in this time, in this place, and, um, and, and what is it, right? And, and that, that is honestly something that pretty much most physicians are not really interested in having conversations about. Um, you know, but I think it would, I mean, helps me <laughs> in, in terms of people changing their minds or at least seeing differently um, around how to, how to look at the, the problem, right, of, of death. Yeah, I think um, a driving force for euthanasia is loneliness. Um, and it worries me because currently we're in the midst of a loneliness epidemic with my generation, and I think it's only going to get worse in the coming generations. And, I mean, I see it so much when I'm um, doing call in the emergency department. A fair number of people come in and they have no social networks anymore. There's no sense of community. There's no church. They have no, no one. Um, so when you're at the end of life, when you're struggling, when you're suffering, and you're by yourself, I think euthanasia becomes an attractive kind of option. Well, the same thing happens at Christmas time. If you work in eMERGE at Christmas time, the most common diagnosis for being in eMERGE at Christmas time is not a turkey fat burn or a cut from carving the turkey. It's loneliness. People come to eMERGE because they can get socialized care from and someone can talk to them mm -hmm. about their loneliness or their cough they've had for you know a day and a half or something like that so yeah and i mean some of us here may live alone for by circumstance but i mean the stat is something like 27 something like that 20 over a quarter of canadians live alone um and that that is a concern for sure. However, you know, like I found for those that we that we have that are truly, truly socially isolated, we can move them places where they can get support. And so, um, yeah. Anyway, I'm just saying, like in my experience, that hasn't really been as much of a driver as it really has been about really at the end of the day, the only thing that we all care about, which is love. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting to to compare end of life care in resource-rich communities like North America versus resource-poor communities like some countries in, in the African continent where our pain control is better, but people die with less peace in palliative care and developed in, in resource-rich countries. Pain control in resource-poor 
countries is poorer, but they have a better sense of peace and, and closure in their end-of-life care, which is partly, I'm sure, almost completely due to the fact that they're surrounded by extended families of you know, large families, mm -hmm. by church communities, by other communities that support them in, in their care. And so in the, in the alleviation of suffering, um, thinking particularly of, of physical suffering, um, uh, there is a point at which the uh, uh, intervention or treatment offered by a physician has the effect of actually shortening a, an individual's life. Uh, how do you think about that ethically? Well, I, I, th I think that happens less than people think. I okay. think most of the studies of effective pain control at end of life actually lengthens people's life, gives them a better quality of life and a longer, a longer life. Situations where you have to give large amounts of sedatives or large amounts of narcotics are rarer, but you're not so concerned that this might affect their respiratory drive because the goal is not to kill them but to control their pain. But mm -hmm. I think one of the common, and I'm not a, no longer a palliative care physician, but, physician, but one of the, the, the concerns around end-of-life appropriate pain control is it was going to shorten people's life. Well, I think most of the studies have shown the opposite, that people do better, live better, are happier, thrive, live longer if they have great pain and symptom management. But you're, you're, you're the, the you active with that? palliative care doc. Well, I mean, the think? evidence certainly shows that. <laughs> um, but I think, um, yeah, and I think this ties into the church in terms of what do we think death is? And, um, you know, and I think the church in many ways has kind of absorbed the messages from society that death is something to be feared and death is something to be like, profoundly afraid of and, and so we avoid it as much as possible. And, um, you know, when we know, like the evidence, the scientific evidence shows it's true. Earlier intervention of palliative care in someone who is terminal will in fact have their life extended and have better quality of life than for people who are in many ways fighting medically relatively futilely with radiation and, and cancer treatments and whatever and on and on and on right until the very end. Uh, and so, I mean, the evidence is there. It's just that I think in our society being so phobic of, of talking about seeing it, smelling it, tasting it, death, that we, that we just, you know, and, and also the battle metaphors, right? We are fighting cancer and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm beating this cancer and, and we have a lot of this battle imagery and, and as the church, that's, that's not our, that is the enemy, but it has been defeated. And so I think the church needs to be a place where we are honest as to what death is uh, and, and not, not shrink away from it and, and know that it's there um, and be able to talk about it. We should be the people who can model what, what good dying looks like. And, and we're not really, honestly, like honestly, Christian patients don't die that much better than, like, than anybody else, really, um, depending on their theology. Um, so, so we do have work to do, right? Well, nobody in Canada dies anymore, Bishop. Nobody dies in Canada anymore. 
they pass away. Okay, so please, don't, don't. Please, nobody dies. And nobody has a funeral anymore. They have celebration a celebration of, of life. life. You know, <laughs> though, and the person's not there because they've been, you know, vanished, you know, so they've disappeared. And there'll be, perhaps be a bedside, a bedside, a graveside ceremony, but, you know, nobody, you know, at the, pay, at the so-and-so's request, there won't be a funeral. Well, the funeral is not about you, you know? Well, sort of, it is about you, but it's about the living. Funerals are for the living, so why would anyone ask their family not to have a funeral service for their benefit? I mean, it's, you're denying family and friends an opportunity to come together and recognize your life and to have mm. a grieving process and to get support from an extended family. Yeah, no funeral at, at the patient's request is a, is a terrible idea. Yeah, it's incomplete grief. Yeah. Clergy often find themselves in those circumstances with families, actually. It's very difficult. I'm also minded of, um, of uh, Woody Allen's uh, comment that he's not he says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I do want to move into perhaps a more um, uh, kind of personal uh, response to a potential situation. Uh, I thought I'd uh, throw out a little case study and see uh, what your insights were. Uh, so just imagine that your neighbor has invited you over for coffee one morning and you accept the invitation. Uh, you know that she suffers from multiple sclerosis and you know that she's had many years struggling with trying to cope with that condition. But lately her MS has worsened and you're surprised that she's even feeling up to having you over since she seems to be so ill. When you arrive, she seems happier than you've seen her for some time and when you finish the visit, she asks you to stay just a little bit longer because she has something she wants to tell you. And then she announces that she has made an appointment with uh, the medical team to administer um, uh, medical assistance in death uh, on Friday. That's abrupt. What's that? <laughs> That's abrupt. Next Friday. <laughs> how, how would you respond to that as, as a neighbor? Am I a doctor or a pastor in this scenario? I'm talking about you, Julie. And just me? <laughs> yes, that's right. This kind of reminds me of ILE, Wycliffe yes. students. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, and there may be other things you'd, you would need to know. Tell us what you would need to know to, to make the... Uh, uh, sorry, for those of you guys who don't go to Wycliffe, it was just a, a question we had to answer last year. Um, I mean, I would, I would want to know what my relationship has been with my neighbor um, in terms of, are we just chatting over the fence about our lawn? Is that as far as our relationship goes? Uh, I would want to know how much have I been involved in her life? Because is this an announcement kind of like telling me that her daughter's having a baby, but I don't know her daughter? Is it kind of like that? Or is it, or do I actually have a real relationship with this woman or not? Um, and, and if I don't, and we've been living next door to each other for a decade or more, um, I would have to ask myself the question, 
why not? Why don't I know her that well if she is my next door neighbor? And why haven't I literally loved my neighbor? Um, so, I mean, that, that would be my fundamental question in terms of, you know, if I just moved in like a week ago, like I'd be like, well, that's a really odd thing to tell me. But, but if, we've been, <laughs> if we've been neighbors for a long time, you know, and I would wonder, well, how have I loved her? Have I, have I told her about Jesus? Have I told her about hope? And have I told her about love? And if I haven't, then why, why haven't I, right? And I, I think those would be my first questions, actually, before mm -hmm. I know what to do in that scenario, really. Well, I, I would think the fact that she's invited you over to tell you this information says that she respects you in some way. So I would see this as some honoring me in some way. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I would want to I would say, well, that's a, that's a shock. You know, I'm surprised to hear that. Tell me more. What, what's been going on that, you, that you've, you've come? Tell me about how the decisions sort of happened to try and get her talking, tell you about what's going on. And by listening to her again, you're acting as an antidote to that, to say, you're worth listening to, I'm interested in you, I think you have a life that's worth living because I want to hear more about this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and depending how that conversation went, I might move towards challenging that, to say, have you really thought about that? What kinds of pressures are you feeling? Uh, I wonder, you know, you know, it's not all about me, but have I failed as your neighbor here? You know, have I been neglecting you? Are you feeling isolated and alone? And I'm going to miss you. You know, I value your company, your advice, your whatever, trying to inject value into that. And then maybe at some point saying, you know, can I be honest with you? I'm concerned about what this means, you know, for those of us who are left behind, for your children, your grandchildren, because this is really is a type of suicide. What about your teenage grandson who's struggling with depression? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to lay guilt here, but I'm, I'm just trying to wonder what's, what's going to be left and what other damage might happen through this. So I, I'm really concerned about that. I need to think about that or pray about that. But I would I'd take this as an honor that they've shared this with you and then try and get back and, and figure out more about what's happening because maybe this is a test. Maybe this is a chance where if you say, well, why or tell me more, you know, she's looking for a reason to say, to call it off. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Natasha, what do, you, what do you, do you have a thought on that? So I, I echo your point. Um, I think if anything that I've learned through my training is that um, there's such value around genuine curiosity. Um, people open up so beautifully when you're just curious about their lives. Um, and so with her, I would, you know, ask a lot of questions and I would just want to know, not judging, but just want to know where she's coming from, how this decision was made, what her experience is with this illness. Um, and I think that also gives you maybe more to work with in terms of um, trying to convince her maybe that this is not a good idea, but I would start there. Um, and then the other point I wanted to make is that I would also just make sure she knows that she will be missed because um, every human being wants to know that 
they are doing something in this world that without them being here would leave a void. I'd communicate that to her. Mm-hmm. I think probably the only other thing I'd, that would come to my mind is um, how much am I willing to put rubber to the road, right? In terms of like, you know, uh, you didn't put in your scenario, is she alone? Does she have family? Does she not have family? Who's around? Uh, you know, but, uh, but am I actually willing to be part of the solution, right? If, if, if some of it is, say, finances, her insurance is running out and she can't, you know, her disability payments, she's, she can't hold on to the house anymore, or whatever, or she has no family, or whatever the circumstances are, right? Am I, am I willing to put, to sacrifice to be able to participate in finding a solution or not? Because if I'm not willing to put my time or money uh, into, um, into helping her or dissuading her or, or whatever, supporting her or whatever, then, then it's, then, you know, it's, it's kind of begs the question as to how do I love my neighbor, right? You know, your answers have really been helpful, I think, particularly for those who are uh, anticipating uh, careers uh, where they're going to provide pastoral care and uh, will have uh, these kinds of encounters. Tell me, um, what uh, if at the end of these conversations uh, she says to you, I want you to be there when I die? Well, I'd say no to that, to say that I I can't be a witness. by being here, I would be agreeing that you have a life that isn't worth living, and I can't do that. I can support you, I'll visit you at home, I'll come and see if you're worried about moving to a nursing home, and nobody will come, uh, make a commitment to come and see you in a nursing home. But I can't be a witness, or I can't be, you know, I can't cooperate with a process that says that you are not a worthwhile person. That was my ILE answer, in fact. but. Um, I mean, uh, physician-assisted death is, it, it looks peaceful, but it is fundamentally a very violent act um, that physicians do uh, to patients. Um, so, and, and so certainly uh, even patients of mine who have decided to go ahead, I have not been there. I know some of my colleagues have chosen to be there in solidarity with their patients, but um, it, Uh, you know, like if they decided to get in front of a firing squad, would I go? No, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to that as well. So, um, or they hired a sniper to come get them. Like I I wouldn't go right to, to witness violence. And I know, and it's also as a caveat, it is also different as a physician working in the secular world compared to uh, pastors in ministry. It, it is a different um, expectation, uh, a different uh, calling, if you will, uh, in terms of what the different roles would be in ministry versus in medicine. Uh, and so I could kind of see how from a pastoral side, it, it, it may be a different answer depending on the person. Um, yeah. Yeah, again, I would approach it with curiosity because I would want to know why she wants me to be there Mm -hmm. and what that means to her and how it would make the experience different. Thank you very much.